unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Masha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Cliff Jayapranada. If you're wondering where Milan is, he's right here with me. Milan just returned from a whirlwind trip to Delhi, and we wanted to turn the tables on him and debrief him on his first trip to India in two years. Milan has also just co-authored a new study on the political attitudes of the Indian diaspora in Australia, just in time for Australia's pivotal national election. Over the weekend, Australians elected a new government with the Australian Labour Party and Anthony Albanese at the helm, ousting the ruling Liberal National Coalition for the first time in a decade. Key to the ALP's landmark victory was the vote of the Indo-Australians, now the second largest immigrant group in Australia. A new study co-authored by Devesh Kapoor, Caroline Duckworth, and Millen studies the political preferences of Indo-Australians, who they intended to vote for in this past weekend's election, and more. To talk all about Indo-Australians and their political preferences, I'm pleased to welcome Caroline, a James C. Gaither Jr. Fellow in Carnegie's South Asia program, and I'm delighted to welcome Millen to Grand Tamasha for the very first time as a guest. Caroline, Millen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. It's very, very strange to be on this side. I'm a little bit scared. <laughs> I'm sure it is, as am I as your host. So let's dive right into it. Australia recently held a general election over the weekend in which the opposition Labour Party formed the government for the first time in a decade. You, Devesh Kapoor, and Caroline Duckworth recently completed a survey of the voting behavior of Indians in Australia. How did the community vote in this past weekend's election? Um, that's right, Cliff. So the three of us did a survey of Indo-Australians in partnership with the research and analytics firm YouGov. This is the fourth in a planned four-country survey of uh the Indian diaspora in the United States, Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom. I think we'll get to maybe some of the comparative angle a little bit later. Um, and this was a survey done just a couple of weeks before the election. It was nationally representative. It was done online. Uh, our, the results can be found at our Carnegie Nauman homepage. Basically, what we found is that four in 10 Australians of Indian origin intended to vote for the Australian Labor Party in the general election. Um, just a quarter of respondents uh, said they were going to vote for the incumbent Liberal National Coalition of Prime Minister Scott Morrison, right? So a pretty clear leftward tilt towards the Labor Party. I think that's the first big takeaway. Uh, but the second takeaway is that uh, 10% uh, of registered voters. So I should mention that uh, this is a survey of registered voters. Uh, they were still undecided in the middle uh, of April when we did our survey. So we're not quite sure um, how that final 10% broke. Um, but if you look at the rest, um, uh, you had you know almost a third of voters who opted for neither major national party. Uh, you had 15% who voted for uh, the left of center Green Party, you had another 7% vote for the right of center, One Nation Party, and then about 5% who either plan to vote for an independent or, or a smaller third party, right? So it's a, it's actually a pretty intricate picture um, of, of, the, of the voting population. But I think the main headline finding is that 40% of this important demographic, increasingly important demographic, is voting labor. So you talk about how the Indo-Australians are becoming increasingly more important. Um, so Caroline, I want to turn it over to you. Why why are they becoming more important? Yeah, so the Indo-Australian community has surged in size in recent years. 
Indian-born residents of Australia more than doubled between 2010 and 2020 when it reached around 721,000 individuals. So the community is now the second largest immigrant group in Australia, and it makes up about 3% of the population. Um, so this increase in size also gives the Indo-Australian community more cultural and political influence. Australia's fastest growing religion is now Hinduism, and its fastest, fastest growing language is Punjabi. So when combined, these factors really help explain why former Prime Minister Scott Morrison was posting selfies of his Indian curry nights and why Labour Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was visiting Hindu temples in their run-up to the election. Both of these candidates really wanted to highlight their relationship to this community um, and, and gain their favor in the run-up to the election. I would just say, just to add to that, that you know we saw a kind of jockeying for the Indo-Australian community that I don't think we've seen before. Uh, I mean, it was Instagram selfies, it was temple visits, it was the celebration of important, uh, you know, religious or other cultural festivals. And in fact, there was a whole commentary in the news media about whether there would be a backlash to this because it's it's it, it sort of reeked so openly of, of, of sort of pandering, right, to, to particular special interests. But I do think that it's a signifier of the fact that this is a population, as Caroline mentioned, has doubled in size. Um, it is now larger than the Chinese diaspora, so it trails only the British diaspora in terms of size, uh, and it's growing at a pretty rapid clip. In the lead up to the election, the coalition openly boasted about ties between India and Australia. Um, the, the former PM, Scott Morrison, kind of played up the China threat, especially in light of uh, the clashes between India and China two years ago on the border. Um, did this sort of tactic work with the Indian diaspora? It doesn't really appear to have paid significant uh, dividends. So, you know, we do a very simple thing in the survey, which most surveys do, and, and we have in all of our other diaspora surveys, is we just ask uh, respondents to say, you know, what are the top three most important issues that are going to influence your vote uh, on election day? And really across all of our countries, and this is true in Australia as well, is that the Indian diaspora is motivated by, you know, kitchen table bread and butter issues. So when it comes down to their topmost issues in Australia, it was uh, three that kind of clustered at the top. It was healthcare, it was the economy, and interestingly was environment and climate change, which is a big issue in Australia more generally. Um, you go much further down to the list, I think it was just about 6% of Indians in Australia cited uh, bilateral ties between those countries as their topmost election issue, right? So as we say in the paper, it's not that this isn't important. Separately, the Indian respondents make very clear that this is something that they care about, it's something that they follow. But when push comes to shove and you have to decide um, who to support on election day, this issue of foreign policy does not seem to kind of trickle up to the very top. And again, that's been pretty consistent in most of the countries that we've looked at, which, you know, basically tells you that uh, Indian Australians are sort of voting how everyone else votes, right? In very few countries is foreign policy regularly a top-tier uh, election issue, right? People are much more concerned with, you know, uh, inflation, the cost of things, employment, jobs, health care, elder care, and so on and so forth. So you, you just said how Indo-Australians are very much so vote like the rest of the general population. Are are there any differences between the voting preferences between Indo-Australians and, you know, the average Australian? 
So we compared our findings uh, with results from the Australian National University's survey of the Australian population also in the run-up to the election. So the time frame was relatively similar. Um, and we did find a slight skew towards the Labour Party in the Indo-Australian community compared to the overall population. So 40% of respondents in our survey plan to vote for Labour compared to only 34% in the general population. Um, now, part of this could still be, uh, as Millen mentioned earlier, explained by the fact that we did have a higher percentage of undecided voters at the time of the survey compared to the overall population. Um, but again, I think in terms of issues, um, you know, as Millen said, we had a kind of top uh, three um, three way tie really between healthcare, climate change, and the economy for the issue that they identified as their top priority. And these were things that the Australian population in general also care about. Um, you know, in the past couple of weeks, there have been multiple um, news reports, for instance, in the New York Times that talk about how the coalition could be. Um, could feel the effects of not prioritizing climate change. And we definitely saw that in our survey, uh, where 24% of respondents who did not identify as coalition supporters said it was directly because the Liberal Party was not committed to climate change mitigation. Um, and so obviously, um, it's not a concern that's only limited to the diaspora community, but it definitely uh, animates Indo-Australian voters. Uh, just one final thing on that. Um... I was struck by the importance based on climate change. But if you look across our surveys, uh, especially in the UK and Canada, you also see climate change environment emerge as a top tier issue. That means the only place where we don't see it is in our own country, the United States, right? Which I think is maybe symbolic of the larger political discourse in which, you know, climate um, has not emerged in the same way. And of course, it's com completely politically in the United States fraught, right? There's this sort of ongoing fight between a party that would like to do more and a party that doesn't believe in climate change. Do you think that there is a connection between Indo-Australians' um, prioritization as climate change as is an issue? Is there a connection between that and what they're seeing in the news going on in India right now with all the heat waves um, and the floods um, from previous times? Like, is there any connection there at all that would make climate change an especially salient issue for Indo-Australians? Well, you know, uh, as someone who just got off the plane from New Delhi, where it was a, a balmy 49 degrees Celsius last week, I mean, there's no question that uh, climate change is uh, an ever-growing threat to livelihoods, to people's public health, uh, frankly, their sanity, right? I mean, I, I think uh, there was a, a, a UN official who called this testing the limits of kind of human survivability because the heat was so intense. So um, I do think that's perhaps part of it. I think the other thing is that, um, you know, Australia as an island nation, uh, of course, has to really think about uh, maritime issues, rising seas, you know, extreme weather. Um, this is a country that had these horrific wildfires. I think we all remember images of those, um, you know, n not too long ago. And, and the third is that, you know, and this is true of all Indian uh, diaspora all over the, uh, the world, is that, you know, they tend to be very high skilled, right? They tend to have a strong grounding in STEM fields. They tend to be uh, more science oriented, right? I mean, that's just true if you look at the labor market, if you look at educational patterns, if you look at um, various other kinds of interests. So I think it's a combination of all these factors that uh, you kind of lead climate change to being, you know, ju not just sort of any old issue, but really a kind of top tier election issue. 
One part of your report that I found particularly interesting is the discrepancy or lack of a discrepancy between the voting preferences of younger and older Indo-Australians. Generally, it's you know generally understood, and especially true here in the United States, that younger voters tend to be more left on the political spectrum. But in your study, it seemed like Indo-Australians, both young and old, had pretty similar uh, political preferences. Uh, could you explain why that may be the case? Um, I mean, the honest answer is I don't think we know. Um, that was a bit surprising. It's not something that we see in any of our other surveys where you do see a much sharper distinction between younger folks, people between the ages of, say, of 18 and 29 and people 55 and up. Uh, you also see a much sharper distinction between people who are first generation immigrants versus second generation, you know, born in country. Um you know, we don't actually see those same kinds of cleavages. Uh, there, there are a couple of hypotheses, and, and this is speculation. You know, one is that the diaspora is very, very new. If you look at the bulk of the immigration, it's all happened, um, you know, uh, in, in the last uh, a decade or two. And so the novelty of the diaspora could mean that, you know, that they're not particularly fixed political views yet, right? So they're sort of that that process of sorting, which has happened now for a much longer duration in other places the diaspora has gone is still playing out. You know, a second possibility is discrimination. Uh, this is a population which has uh, garnered a lot of news headlines because they have been victims of really terrible discrimination, particularly university students and younger people. And so it's possible that that entrenched feeling of being a, a minority uh, has solidified support with left of center parties, which tend to be more progressive when it comes to issues of race and social justice, right? And the third is, and we haven't done this analysis, so I think it's something that's on our to-do list going forward is, you know, there could also be some kind of interaction going on between age and the date of arrival, right? So in other words, um, it, it's not that young and old are necessarily the same, it's when you came. Uh, one thing we see in other places, for instance, is that people who have come more recently, who have left in India, which is much more politically conservative, some of those views tend to transfer to their, their adopted homeland, in this case, Australia, right? Um, so it's not necessarily an age-specific thing, but when they arrive. So I think, you know, there are a lot of these factors that could be interacting uh, with age that I think we need to probably explore in greater depth. So as you said, um, the Indo-Australian population is still fairly new as a diaspora community in Australia. Is is this growth that they've seen over the last decade, is this going to continue in the next decade and, and decades to come? And will they become a more influential voting bloc uh, moving forward? So I think there's no question that the influence of the Indo-Australian community is going to continue to rise, right? I mean, the kind of electioneering we saw this time was unprecedented. As this share of the population increases, you know, the parties are going to want to double down. I mean, it's worth noting just for our listeners, if you step back, you know, 30 percent of Australia's overall population is born overseas. Right. Which is a huge number. One of the biggest of all Western countries. That number keeps rising. Um and the emphasis, and this is true again when you look at immigration patterns around the world, uh, continues to be on educated, high-skilled migrants, right? So whether in the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, other parts of Europe, you know, that's really the slice that people want to welcome. And their Indians have a big advantage, obviously, because of the uh, the production of, of, of skilled, 
English speaking, kind of, you know, upwardly advancing uh, migrants. It's not to say that, you know, there there aren't other people who are coming as well, who are lower on the socioeconomic spectrum, who may be younger students, who may be asylum seekers, and so on and so forth. But, but this high skilled, highly educated group um, does tend to dominate when you look at the overall averages, right? So, so I think that the influence is only going to go uh, upwards. And, and, you know, Indians are starting to point out the fact that their political stature is growing, their share of the voting electorate is growing, but they still have very, very little representation, right, in, in the halls of parliament. Um, so unlike the United States, where we're starting to see, uh, or the United Kingdom, where we've seen for much longer, uh, Indians really break into, you know, high positions of, of elected uh, office, uh, that is still, uh, there is still something of a glass ceiling, I think, in Australia. So, you know, I think we're going to see more calls for the parties to do a better job of nominating people of Indian descent to positions in parliament and and, and other elected positions at the subnational level. And I think, too, just to um, jump in here as well, that it's not necessarily also just a problem that the um, Indo-Australian community is experiencing in terms of um, having political parties representing them um, and their interests at the at the federal level. Um, You know, we did compare um, how. Um, Indo-Australians view the political parties in their proximity to different um, ethnic groups. And it really didn't seem generally across the board like one party dominated um, in terms of being the closest to uh, an ethnic group. Another part of your report that I found really interesting was that while the Indo-Australians preferred, much preferred the Labour Party um, to win the election, they still wanted the coalition prime minister, Scott Morrison, to remain in power. Uh, which I found very interesting. Is is this a sign that the coalition still has hope for winning back the diaspora vote, even though they lost this time around? Yeah, I think you're right. So our survey clearly shows Indo-Australians have a clear preference for labor. You can see this not only in terms of their vote choice, you can see it in terms of their partisan identity, you can see this in terms of their ideological self-placement. Um, I do think there are a couple of reasons to worry or a couple of reasons of caution if you're the Labour Party, right? So as you mentioned, you have a general leftward tilt, but the diaspora broadly supported uh, the incumbent PM Scott Morrison, thought he performed well, thought he handled India-Australia ties pretty ably. Uh, in fact, a plurality, of, a plurality of respondents wanted to see him come back as, as prime minister, right? So from their perspective, this was not a sort of anti-Morrison verdict. But I think there's a second thing, and it goes back to, to what Caroline just said uh, uh, previously, which is when we ask respondents you know, how well the two parties do, either in terms of representing the interests of the Indian diaspora or how well they do in terms of nominating diaspora members as candidates, there's statistically really no difference between the ratings that Indians give the Labour Party and the ratings that they give the Liberal National Coalition, right? So which which tells you a little bit that there is perhaps some room for the coalition to distinguish itself. Um, And uh, again, we keep going back to the fact that this is a relatively young population. Um, You know, in other countries where we've surveyed, the Indian diaspora is very clearly tied to a major party, right? So in the United States, Indian Americans have been amongst the most loyal constituencies in the Democratic Party. 
In the United Kingdom, we're seeing an interesting shift take place uh, along religious lines. So Hindu voters are starting to see the Conservative Party, the Tories, as their as their natural home, where Sikhs and Muslims continue to strongly identify uh, with the Labour Party. In Canada, it's really a question of which left party you identify with, because there are very few uh, Indo-Canadians who who are on the on the right, at least according to our survey. Australia is really the outlier there, where there really isn't any firm sorting, right? So if you look at Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Asians, whites, blacks, First Nation individuals, uh, according to our respondents, you know, no party is perceived to be markedly closer to, to any of these communities, right? And so, so, there, so there, there's a sense that it's a much more fluid and open system than, than some of these other places that we've been talking about. Yeah, that, that's really interesting that between, you know, the four democracies, Western democracies that you studied and their Indian di- diasporas, they're all just kind of different. Why, why, why is that? Um, of course, you know, the Indian diaspora is probably not a monolith. They don't all have the same beliefs, but why is it that in the United States, they're liberal and in the UK, they're a little more conservative. In Australia, it's a it's a grab bag. Um, any ideas? So our survey did ask respondents of all of these countries to place themselves on the standard left-right political spectrum, ranging from extremely liberal to extremely conservative. Um, and the Indo-Australians were the second most liberal diaspora community uh, of these countries, with 58% identifying on the liberal end of the spectrum. Um, you know, as Millen mentioned earlier, Canada identified as the most liberal, uh, with 73% respondents on the liberal side. Um, and the United Kingdom and the United States, as you said, Cliff, are definitely identifying more conservatively. So, Cliff, you asked about the differences between, you know, these large Western English-speaking democracies and their their Indian diaspora populations. And I know that that's going to be the big uh, focus um, of uh, the next phase of this project, you know, why these trends exist and, and how... Um, and how they they vary, um, but I think as Nolan said, the the age of the diaspora community can can definitely uh, help explain some of that. I, I think this is a genuine puzzle, um, and I think will be the subject of a, of a lot of work that we're going to do over the next year or two. Overall, if you look at the Indian diaspora, um, there's a selection effect in terms of who migrates, uh, particularly to these Western countries. Right, they tend to be people who are the creme de la creme, whether in terms of education, in terms of skills, and so on and so forth. Um, and wherever they've gone, they've done very well. I mean, you can see that in terms of their median income. You can see that in terms of their median education. You can see that in terms of the, the careers, paths that they've chosen, you know, any definition of kind of, you know, professional success, right? Uh, at the same time, we do see these divergent political trajectories. Uh for instance, if you look at the U.S.-U.K., I think that's a very interesting, you know, comparison where there were there have been a lot of Republicans who have long said that Indian Americans belong with us, and they thought that the 2020 election was going to be the time that Indian Americans finally migrated to the GOP uh, because they were the party that had really brought these two uh, countries together. Trump obviously had had emphasized this a lot and his campaign did, uh, and we didn't see that materialize. I think, you know, one part of the puzzle is certainly the nature of the party itself, right? Um, the Re- Republican Party is seen, uh, and this is the perception Indian Americans have, according to our survey, is much more extreme, uh, much more xenophobic, much more intolerant of minorities. Uh, that is not the same party brand that the UK Conservative Party has. 
foreign policy has not really injected itself into the political discourse in the United States in the same way that it has in the UK, where we see, for instance, that um, because you have a very large Pakistani and Bangladeshi diaspora, um, issues of India-Pakistan, UK ties with Boj uh, are often thrust into the political limelight in ways that um, can help to polarize, right? And so we've seen evidence of that in the United Kingdom. So I think that there are a, a lot of factors at play, but this is, you know, to us, I think one of the most, you know, interesting questions that, that we want to explore. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to move on from talking about their support and talk about your recent trip to Delhi, Millen. Uh, over the last week, you were just in Delhi, where, as you said, it was a palmy 49 degrees Celsius, which is insane. I want to know, what were people saying in your time there about this historic heat wave in Delhi? Yeah, it was the first time that I've been to Delhi since the pandemic, uh, and uh, I think I probably picked the wrong week to visit. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, as I was saying to a friend, it wasn't just hot, it was sort of, you know, face melting. Um, you know, people like me get to exist in a pretty privileged bubble, right? We go from an air-conditioned uh, hotel or apartment to an air-conditioned Uber to an air-conditioned office and conference room. So we're really insulated from from some of the, the worst impacts. But it was the first time that everyone I met at Delhi was complaining about the heat, which tells you something, right? I mean, this is a population that is used to extreme heat. And I think there was a feeling, at least, at the kind of elite level, right, that something has to change. And I think there were kind of two interesting aspects to that conversation. One is, I think many people I spoke to reserve plenty of criticism for the major historical emitters in the West, right? And they sort of take umbrage when they look at the major global publications and see headlines about the extreme heat and how India's politicians have to do more. And I think they all agree India's politicians have to do more, but that sort of leaves the major emitters off the hook, right? Countries like the United States and 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 countries in Europe and elsewhere, um, as if this was somehow a problem that you know was indigenous, right? And in fact, uh, we had nothing. We in the outside world had nothing to to contribute to. So I do think that you know India has tried very hard in recent years to reposition itself when it comes to international efforts to combat climate change as part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And they have never felt, and I think continue not to feel, like that has been sufficiently uh, appreciated. I think second, you know, in the long term, you know, there have been, I think, many uh, conversations, discussions, op-eds, basically arguing that, look, one of the best ways of mitigating both extreme heat waves and the kind of debilitating power cuts that we often observe is to reduce India's carbon emissions. I just want to point to a recent Carnegie piece that our former colleague Jonathan Kay wrote, where sort of sketches out what the linkage is between these two. 
Um, so at the same time that there's a lot of ire directed towards the West, I do think that there is a rededication to trying to put this much more squarely on the map of policymakers. You know, unfortunately, it's hard for these issues to become uh, uh, salient, right, and to, until voters really take care of them. And I think there are just so many other issues that crowd out the agenda, particularly, again, coming back to, you know, our, our earlier discussion on Australia, bread and butter issues of jobs, livelihoods, uh, the economy, and so on and so forth, that um, accept and select urban pockets, uh, climate change, the environment, you know, haven't quite uh, moved up that ladder yet. You mentioned climate as an issue of tension between the West and India. Um, another such another issue that has also caused tension uh, as of recently is uh, the Russia-Ukraine and India's ambivalence toward the war going on there right now. How much is that conversation still dominating um, Indian foreign policy spaces? Well, I I think it is to a certain extent, although um, it, we've seen a just a real transformation of the debate, right? So there've been like three, at least three phases. The first phase was, I think, an initial shock and disappointment, particularly in the West, about India's refusal, stubborn refusal to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That then led to a second phase of kind of grudging or gradual, you know, acceptance that, you know, India has its reasons and it's not going to move. And now to this third phase of sort of full court, you know, enhanced courtship, right, where we're seeing a parade of officials visiting India from the Russians to the Chinese to the Americans. Modi was in France and Germany. Now he's in Japan for the Quad Summit. And it's been sort of, um, uh, you know, like a feeling of cognitive dissonance, right? To see see the conversation shift so quickly in such a short period of time. And I think there are at least three reasons for the shift. One is that India's own position has evolved. And that's what India's diplomats will tell you, right? They started out with just a stubborn refusal not to condemn. That then went into more and more detailed explanations of why they had to abstain, even though they condemn what's happened and they feel for the Ukrainians and are sending humanitarian relief. So it became really clear that India was essentially abstaining sort of out of duress, right? Uh, I think that's one. I think the second is that there's just a better understanding in capitals around the world of India's bind, which is that when it comes to the defense sector, you know, India relies primarily on Russian-made systems. These legacy systems need a lot of care and maintenance. That care and maintenance can only come from one place. And when you have uh, hundreds of thousands of Chinese troops amassing on your border, this is not the time to kind of roll the dice with, um, you know, saying, uh, you know, uh, thanks but no thanks to to your, your all-weather friend, the Russians. Um and instead, you know, people have kind of harped upon the fact that there has been a general trend towards diversification if you look at India's arms imports, right? So the Russian share is going down, the French share, the European share, the Israeli share, American share have been going up. I think the third factor is that, frankly, India has had effective pushback. Uh, and I think the line that best encapsulates all of this is the one that External Affairs Minister Jay Shankar gave when he was sort of confronted uh, about India's oil imports and the fact that it was actually buying more oil from Russia, where it said, you know, basically, uh, according to you know his mind, India imports as much oil in an entire month that uh, Europe doesn't in, in an entire afternoon. 
right? And I think that they've really sort of called a spade a spade and kind of, you know, basically pointed out the hypocrisy in some of this criticism. So I think for all of these reasons, this is obviously still an issue. The situation is 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 gone from bad to worse on the ground. But I do think that India has successfully neutralized a lot of the opposition that it faced in the early days. Yeah, it seems like the BJP has is still very popular despite the criticism it has received from the West. Obviously, they won several key critical state elections the other month. Um, in your week in India, do you did you see any sign that the opposition Congress party um, has any chance of renewal in the near future? Yeah, I mean, I should just point out, you know, it was only in Delhi, so uh, the, the the kind of limits to one's inquiry, obviously. But um, I, I think the the biggest difference to me between 2019 and 2022 is the Congress uh, in in the following sense. I think after the 2019 general election, there were all of the usual questions. You know, can the Congress fix its leadership deficit? How is the Congress going to reorganize? How are they going to pivot to issues that are going to be electorally more popular? You know, how do we kind of build a coalition around this Congress party that's not as great uh, as we'd like it to be, but here it exists. Fast forward to 2022, where I think the big change is the opposition has now baked in the fact that the Congress is probably not coming back, um, that frankly, their frailties and infirmities are too large to be overcome, and that they have missed every exit ramp that they've been offered over the past eight years to try and get to a better place. And so I, I think, you know, there, there are obviously lots of questions that loom over the opposition. You know, for, for instance, you know, does the opposition just have the will to win? You know, I mean, uh, I, I was remarking to someone that, you know, the, the BJP, you know, never rests, right? Every local election is just as big as the Uttar Pradesh election. Well, it seems like the opposition is always resting, right? I mean, there's just a there's just a order of magnitude difference in terms of 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 of, of the kind of craving for for political power. I, I think the second is 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 there is this game now that's being played uh, called competitive welfareism, where you know the BJP started by uh, pushing a lot of money through these top-down welfare schemes to build toilets, to hook up houses to the electricity grid, to provide uh, low-cost cooking cylinders to to women in rural areas. They were uh, tied inextricably to the prime minister, to his name, to his image. And that became a very successful electoral tool. We're now seeing state chief ministers do this with abandon to try to promote welfare as a w weapon essentially, of, of keeping the BJP at bay. And, and the question is, you know, will they really actually be able to uh, claim credit in the same way that Modi has? Uh, will they be able to innovate, right? Will it just be kind of seen as a copycat measure? And I think one of the other, you know, big questions is, are they going to be able to transition from direct handout welfare um, to public services, right? So if, if you take the Amadmi Party, the the ruling party in Delhi, they they're now the ruling party in Punjab. Part of their claim to fame in Delhi is that they have done something to improve the uh, parlous state of health and education in Delhi. Is that something that they can replicate in Punjab? It's not something actually they campaigned on. It's not something they've been talking about. But maybe that's just because they have to kind of entrench themselves, build their legitimacy, give some easy wins to the population, and then pivot to these larger issues. 
that might be a way to kind of push the BJP where we've seen very little innovation or fresh thinking when it comes to public goods as opposed to these private transfers, right? So so there's no question that the BJP today is the odds-on favorite in 2024. And I, I do think that there are some very vexing, I mean, none of these issues for the opposition have very easy answers. We haven't even talked about, you know, the whole religion uh, secularism issue, which I think is another thorny issue. Um, but I think in terms of the Congress, um, this is a sort of five alarm fire. One of the things that you were doing in Delhi was helping organize a workshop on cooperative federalism, which is a buzzword used by the Modi government to describe a new era in collaborative center state relations. How much cooperation is there in cooperative federalism right now? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a running joke of the week is that we were, you know, debating three days about how to improve cooperative federalism when, the, you know, we were seeing a lot of uncooperative federalism play out. So the short answer is not very much cooperation is happening. And I think we're seeing a sharpening of divisions between the center and the states along several different axes. Um, and I think, you know, number one, there's really no effective venue in India today at a kind of political level to kind of mediate disputes between the center and the states. There's something called the Interstate Council. It's largely a defunct body. It's hardly met uh, in the past few years. You have, of course, the upper house of parliament, the Rajya Sabha, which was created as a council of states, no longer has any pretense of representing uh, you know, state interests or state debates. You had a planning commission, which was this kind of top-down kind of socialist vestige that helped to come up with, um, you know, central plans uh, and then would fund state plans. That's now been abolished. It's been replaced by a, a think tank in Delhi, so it doesn't have any of the purse strings, right? So none of the sort of heft that that its that its predecessor had. So I think we have this problem of how do we get cooperation when we don't have a lot of bodies. Uh, and frankly, a, a, a central government that um, that uh, part of its governance style is to be very top down and look for kind of, you know, all India uh, solutions. I think the second issue is that we are seeing the center by virtue of its stature, of its popularity, and again, its ideology uh, increasingly infringe on what are clearly state subjects under the Constitution. Right. So the most. A uh, visible example of that is these controversial farm laws that, that the Modi government passed uh, a, a few years ago, which it then had to repeal and roll back because there was such significant pushback from farmers, but also from uh, many states or many BJP states, many BJP interests who were unhappy with those measures. And then I think the third and final axis is fiscal. Um, India has a very unique fiscal setup where most of the expenditure happens at the state level, but most of the taxes get collected at the central level. And in fact, we've seen more centralization over time as some as things like the goods and services tax, you know, which is a big tax reform passed in 2016, have, have taken off. And we've seen a lot of tensions crop up in, in terms of how much is the center willing to send down to the states, right? So when the Modi government came in, it promised that it was going to take the biggest ever chunk of what they call divisible pool funds and send them down to the states. Um, but they actually never fulfilled their original promise. They found ways through the back door essentially to take money that was reserved for the states and use it to fund their own coffers. You know, we have to remember India has been in the midst of an economic slowdown. So, um, you know, uh, 
fiscal uh, calculations have been stretched kind of everywhere, right? So, so I think there is a huge agenda going forward between the center and the states, both in terms of finding venues for cooperation on existing issues. And I think the second is thinking about issues that are emerging on the horizon, right? Take an issue like migration or climate uh, or social protection, right? E even, even the regulation of capital, right? And the flows of capital. I mean, are there ways for the center and states to come together? They need not always have a formal institution. They could have informal arrangements, but I think this is something that we're going to look into. And I think their absence now is starting to be rather glaring. As you said, this was your first trip back to India in two years since the beginning of the pandemic. After this trip, did you leave India with any burning questions that you're hoping to answer through your research in the coming months and years? Yeah, I mean, one always leaves India with more questions than answers. I think that's the <laughs> that's the nature of the place. You know, I mean, I think just to pick two kind of off the top of my head, I think there was this whole literature in the 1950s about the Congress Party, uh, 50s and 60s and 70s, actually, about the dominant Congress and we talked a lot about the importance of studying factions within the Congress party to understand where policy was going to move, to understand some of the tensions within the party. So the Congress had a left faction, a right faction, a, a states faction, a center faction, and so on and so forth. We don't study the BJP in the same way. I think we've often tended to say, okay, the BJP in the RSS, which is, of course, this non-governmental kind of ideological wellspring for the BJP, are kind of one and the same, right? They both share a consensus on social issues and are kind of singing from the same sheet of music. I think that's very simplistic. I think we've already seen evidence that there are shades of gray. There are uh, pressures and pulls from the rank and file, from the more conservative elements, uh, you know, pragmatists who want not to uh, go hammer and tongs at such a communally kind of divisive agenda, say, on Hindu-Muslim relations. So I do think we need a better mapping and understanding of those pressure points as they relate particularly to this government. I think the second is just this welfare question, you know, uh, Whenever the BJP does well, particularly at the state level, also in the 2019 national elections, we chalked it up to welfare, that they just really mastered the welfare game. They were so smart in how they, how they packaged things, delivered things, advertised, promoted. But then when they lose, somehow welfare never mattered, right? Um, and so I don't think it, it, it's not yet a very convincing explanation because I don't think we've fully understood um, the conditions under which it works when it doesn't work, um, how much does it, you know, push the needle relative again, say to sectarian or religious issues or just the, you know, they, the outsized outmatched popularity of the prime minister. So I think, you know, this is going to be an issue that many people are going to have to face as, as we, we have the ramp up now, a whole series of state elections in, in 2022, 2023, leading up to the general election in 2024. Um, and right now, I think we're still trying to understand sort of what happened a few years ago and kind of what the current state of affairs is. Well, I and I'm sure our audience here in Grant Masha are excited to uh, read about your research and potentially hear about it again on Grant Masha. Um, please, everyone, go check out the study done by Caroline Millen and Devesh Kapoor on Indo-Australians and their political preferences in Australia. Uh, we'll link to it below in the show notes. Um, Caroline Millen, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you so much for, for doing this. It was not as painful as I thought, but uh, I look forward to next week when I can be on the other side. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. 
This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.